Lord, as we take but a few moments this morning to reflect on the Word of God, Holy Spirit, we invite you to open our minds and our hearts to receive from you today what you have in store for us. I pray that each one of us would hear with urgency the truth you're making known to us today. In Christ's name, amen. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 24, uh, we will eventually get to the text. You might want to stick a little note card or bookmark there. We'll be there soon. Um, we're not going to read through the whole entire chapter today, though I considered it. 27 verses. Figured we could maybe summarize the front end and get to the back end and uh, spend some time there. But you've heard of the expression calm under fire, I'm sure, right? Calm under fire is really that, that place that people live where the, when they're under intense pressure or criticism and they're able to remain calm under their circumstances. I think people who are calm under fire are people that we admire, people we look up to, people we oftentimes even want to be like and sometimes wonder how in the world they can be so able to live in that space with such courage and strength. Today, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul as he stands before Governor Felix and an attorney that has been hired by the Sanhedrin to bring about some accusations against him. Paul is under trial, and while he's under trial, he is that person who remains calm under fire. In doing so, he takes advantage twice, one publicly and one privately, to proclaim the gospel to people who needed to hear about Jesus. One of the lessons that we will learn today is that through the power of God, we as Christians can deliver a calm but bold witness, even in the midst of stressful situations. Maybe you've been there with a family member or a coworker or a friend and the conversations become intense and they're not a believer and, and you're not sure how to answer their questions and it seems to be going south and so you don't know what to do. Well, all I can say is call on the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be with you. He will give you the words to speak in those situations and then believe that God gets to change the heart of people. That's not your job. That's not my job. So be faithful. God promises he will be faithful. You see, after leaving Jerusalem under armed guard and being escorted to Caesarea, Paul stood trial before Felix. He was the governor of Israel at the time. This trial that he was brought into was the result of really four false accusations. These false accusations Paul was given an opportunity to respond to. But before we get to the trial, we must understand that this was an ordinary trial in the sense that all of the elements of what Paul could have expected at this trial were there. First of all, it included the filing of the charges and then the prosecution would come and present their case before the governor then Paul, as the defendant, 
had an opportunity to respond to the accusations against him. And then there was an expectation that the governor would make a ruling. I guess what was unique or different about this case is that the governor chose not to make a ruling at that time. And this really sets the scene for Paul's second opportunity to to share the gospel. But here we have the Sanhedrin who hired a a lawyer, a professional orator to stand before the governor and to make the governor feel really good about himself by calling him your excellency and you're wonderful and, and we are grateful for the opportunity to be before you today. In actuality, this governor was cruel and he was mean and he didn't have a good reputation amongst the Jews. And so all of that flattery was nothing but a bunch of fluff. Contrast that to the way that the apostle Paul stood and addressed the governor. He didn't puff him up. He just simply acknowledged his presence. But here we have this lawyer Tertullus, who brings these four charges against Paul. And and essentially, this is found in Acts 24, verses 5 and 6. I'm just going to read it briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker who is constantly stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the cult known as the Nazarenes. Furthermore, he was trying to desecrate the temple when we arrested him. These are the charges. Number one, Paul was accused of being a troublemaker. He was a pest. He was making noise and it was bothering people. The second thing he was accused of is being stirring, being that man who, who stirs up trouble and, and, and who is a political agitator and who is starting riots. And why is this important to a Roman governor? Because the Roman government wanted nothing more than to keep the peace. And they would keep the peace at all costs. Paul is going to argue, wait a second. I'm not the one who is starting all these riots. But that was certainly what he was accused of. The third thing, he was accused of being that ringleader of the cult known as the Nazarenes. This is the first time Christians are called Nazarenes. And it's actually the only other time in scripture that it happens. But why a Nazarene who was from Nazareth? Jesus. Remember what was asked about Nazareth? What good can come from Nazareth? The goodness of God through his one and only son, Jesus Christ. That's what good can come from Nazareth. Lastly, Paul was accused of disrupting the temple, desecrating it. Now in his defense, It really has three parts, publicly speaking. In verses 11 through 16, he says, My conscience is clear before God. I'm going to summarize this if you give me the liberty to do that. So thank you. You can go and read it yourself. But as it pertains to the law, the Roman law, as it pertains to the law of God, my conscience is clear and all the accusations against me, they're false. The second way he responded, in verses 17 to 20, he said, and as far as my civil behavior goes, 
I'm blameless. I didn't start the riots. I've only been in Jerusalem less than two weeks. Are you sure that all the things they're saying about me could even be accomplished in that amount of time? The answer is no, it couldn't. I'm not guilty of that. Your honor. Verse 21, Paul concludes his argument by proclaiming the resurrection is essentially the reason he's standing before the governor, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's saying it's not because I'm a jerk in town. It's not because I'm the troublemaker. It's not because I'm starting riots. It's not because I'm the leader of a cult. The reason I'm standing before you is because I know Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah of Israel, is not dead. He is alive. And that's the reason I'm standing here before you today. Seems like an odd thing to have to be standing on trial for. The belief that Jesus is not dead, but alive. It wasn't a popular message back then. It's not a popular message today. In fact, a lot of people think we're nuts as Christians for believing that our Savior is someone who died and rose from the dead. So what's the big deal about the resurrection? The big deal about the resurrection is that Christianity hinges on the resurrection. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't happen 2,000 years ago, then Christianity is dead. Our faith is a mute issue. We're lost in our sin. And of all people, we are to be pitied because we are fools for believing in something that's not true. But as the scriptures say, the resurrection of Christ is true. And for those who believe it, it is salvation. For those who reject it, it is condemnation. See, one of the things that we see about Paul in both his his private and his public time before Governor Felix, and we're going to get to his private time, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, is, is the private conversation that he has with the governor. But one of the things that we recognize here is that no matter what Paul's situation or circumstance was, he found a way to present the gospel. He found a way to get around to the gospel. He always found a way to talk to people about Jesus. I guess my question to you is, do you see life circumstances in your life to be that advantage? What Paul did whenever he got in trouble or whenever he was in a good situation, he never looked upon his circumstances. He kept his eyes on Jesus. And when you think about your life and your circumstances and when they're not good, where are your eyes? If your eyes are on your circumstances or away from Jesus, you will be overwhelmed, you will be all consumed, and you will have no interest in sharing Jesus with others or living the gospel in life. That only happens when our eyes are on Christ. Paul was intentional about his Christian life. And so should we be. We talk about the blessed life here at Alexandria Covenant. Bless is an acronym, B-L-E-S-S. 
It stands for the way that we are intentional about sharing our faith with people. It begins by looking around and seeing people who need Jesus, and we begin with prayer. We pray for them. And then we take time to to listen to them so that they know that we care. We spend time eating together or experiencing life together so that there's a relationship that's established. We serve them in love and with love so that they know they're not just an object we're trying to chase after, but they are an object of God's affection. And then we share our story for God's glory, which is the very place that we find ourselves bringing Jesus to people and saying, the life that God has given me as a result of knowing Jesus, he can give you too. When we move on to verses 22 through 27, Governor Felix, having heard enough on both sides, he dismissed Paul's accusers while still keeping Paul under this kind of house arrest situation that made possible the interview between Felix and his wife, Drusilla, and the Apostle Paul. Paul's example will show us how to share the gospel with others. And Felix and Drusilla will show us how sometimes people will not respond positively to the gospel. So we pick up in Acts 24, beginning in verse 22. I'll read through the end of the chapter. At that point, Felix, who was quite familiar with the way, adjourned and the hearing and said, wait until Lysias, the garrison commander, arrives. Then I will decide the case. He ordered an officer to keep Paul in custody, but to give him some freedom and allow his friends to visit him and take care of his needs. A few days later, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Sending for Paul, they listened as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus. As he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming day of judgment, Felix became frightened. Go away for now, he replied. When it is more convenient, I'll call for you again. He also hoped that Paul would bribe him, so he sent for him quite often and talked with him. After two years went by in this, Felix was succeeded by Festus, and Felix wanted to gain favor with the Jewish people, so he left Paul in prison. The scripture tells us that when Felix and Drusilla invited Paul to have a conversation with them. He reasoned with them about three things, righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. I want to give you a little bit of background with Felix and Drusilla. Felix was the first and only slave to ever become a governor Felix was one corrupt dude. Felix was married two other times. Drusilla was married and she was a Jew. Felix took an interest in her. She was young, 
and she was beautiful. And he chased after her. And he sent someone to go persuade her to be his wife. Part of the persuasion came with all of the promise. I will give you money. I will give you a nice life. We will enjoy vacations together and you will have no need and we will live a life of prestige. She was drawn to that invitation and so she divorced her husband. He divorced his wife and then they got married. It all began as a life of corruption. So when Paul is invited to sit with Drusilla, who was a Jew, and Felix, who was a governor, I wonder what they thought he was going to talk to them about. Like maybe she had questions from her upbringing. Like, I think Paul can answer my questions about the Old Testament. I wonder if he'll do that for me. Instead, Paul took the advantage of his opportunity with them and he said, you know what, I'm going to get a little confrontational with you today and we're going to talk about three things that are going to make you really uncomfortable. Number one, righteousness. Number two, self-control. And number three, a coming judgment. All of which were fitting based on Felix's lifestyle and, 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 and Drusilla's life for Paul to address as it pertains to righteousness, Paul says, let me tell you about a righteousness that needs to be your standard for living. It's God's righteousness. It's his law. It's his word. It's called the Bible. See, one of the things we're guilty of as, as humans and oftentimes as Christians is we want to evaluate our righteousness not based on what God's word says, but based on our neighbor and how they're doing. You know why it's easier to do that? Because when I look at my life compared to your life, it's easier for me to think I'm doing pretty good. But when I look at my life compared to the word of God, you know what it tells me constantly? Failure. You failed again. You failed again. So I walk around like this, right? I'm not a loser in Christ. I'm actually a winner. I'm a winner because of the grace of God. Though I fail as a believer, I have God's grace that helps me to press on. But without Christ, I'm just a failure. Each and every one of us has to come to terms with the fact that it's not our self-righteousness that is the, 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 the litmus test for how good we are. It's God's righteousness that becomes the standard for our lives as Christians. Paul goes on and he talks about a life of self-control. Drusilla and Felix you haven't demonstrated a life of self-control at all. In fact, all you've demonstrated is a life of self-pleasure. Your life is all about you. You're not interested in pleasing God. You're interested in pleasing yourself. God won't have that. In fact, if you want self-control, the kind that will give you a fruit 
in your life will you're, you, you will experience peace and joy and love and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. You have to look to God because it's only through Jesus can you have that kind of self-control. It says, you know, because God has a standard for our life, because he wants us to live for him and not ourselves. There'll come a day when we'll have to give account for our actions in our life. And, and that day is called judgment day. And, and there's two kinds of judgment. There's a judgment upon which God will declare us righteous in his son. And then there is a judgment upon which God will say, you are condemned to hell because you've rejected my son. Paul's point to Felix and to Drusilla was that you'll never be declared righteous based on your good deeds or on your own efforts. You will only be declared righteous based on what you've done with God's one and only son, Jesus Christ. Felix, Drusilla, if you don't change your standard of living and if you don't find a way to get your life under control, the judgment that you face is condemnation to hell. By highlighting God's holiness, man's sinfulness, and the judgment to come, Paul's appeal to Felix and to Drusilla was, you need Jesus. And he's wooing you now. He's calling you unto salvation. He loves you to death. He's not just wooing Felix and Drusilla, God's wooing you too. He loves you to death. Do you know that? Is God's love for you nothing more than a good idea? Or has he penetrated your heart yet? Do you see the urgency of the matter? Statistically speaking, it's reasonable for me to conclude that most of you in here are still condemned to hell. Has the grace of God opened your eyes to the reality of who Jesus is? And has all the information that you've gained through Sunday school, through your upbringing, through what you know about Jesus, moved from your head to your heart? Have you truly confessed your sin to Christ and trusted him to be your savior? There's three ways we can answer this. Yes and amen, and I know I am saved. There are those who can say, I, I've never done that before. God loves you and he's wooing you. He's calling you. 
And then, then those who are like, well, I, I'm not sure. If you're not sure, I think it's fair to say you're not saved. We can be sure. So what did Paul even talk to them about anyway? I mean, you notice what the text says? Drusilla invites Paul and they have this conversation and then there's a response by Felix and Drusilla and then they keep inviting Paul back to have more and more conversation. I'm just curious, like, what do you think they talked about? I think they talked about things that Paul wrote about in the letters to like the Romans and the Galatians. I, I think things that Paul said to them were things like this when he says in Romans, you know, there is not one righteous. I think he said things like, all fall short of God's glorious standard. But the good news about the bad news is that through Jesus Christ, we can meet God's standard. I think he said things like, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I think he said things like he wrote to the Galatians, if you want to have self-control, you need the Spirit of God in your life. And if you have the Spirit of God, you need to submit to the Spirit because if you don't submit to the Spirit, then you're going to submit to your flesh and then you'll be a self-pleaser, not a God-pleaser. You sense the urgency? Where are you at with Jesus today? The gospel was confrontational in Paul's day. And it's still confrontational today. I'll tell you why. Because a clear gospel message demands a response. And the only response that will be acceptable to God that will allow us to have our sin covered is a response of repentance from our sin towards Christ. There isn't another way we can respond to the gospel that will be favorable in the eyes of God. There's only one response. I'll be honest with you, as a pastor, there is a real temptation to stand in this pulpit and to preach good news, good, feel-good messages, ones that tickle your ears and make you leave feeling really good about yourself. I understand that for some of you, maybe even many of you, what you would rather me preach about rather than the word of God is you would rather me preach about the three principles that would give you a healthy marriage or the five things we should do as parents to make our kids perfect or the seven things that we should do in order to have the most successful life we can have on earth. I'm sorry, that's not the gospel. Do you understand the urgency today of your need to call on Jesus for salvation? One commentator writes, the, exclu the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and submitting one's whole life under the lordship of Jesus in holiness 
continue to offend people, but we must be more concerned about offending Christ than culture. Speak his word in humility and love as a faithful messenger of God. That is what we are to do. And that is what I am committed to doing. From Paul giving the gospel, let's reflect now on how Felix and Drusilla respond to the gospel. Verse 25, as he reasoned with them about righteousness, self-control, and coming day of judgment, Felix became frightened. Go away for now, he replied. When it is more convenient, I'll call for you again. (laughs) Have you ever done that? I mean, Jesus sounds really interesting, and I'm glad you're sharing this with me. But I remember as a teenager, I was given the invitation and, you know, I I said, I'll get around to that someday. And then when I was in my early 20s, I said, you know, I still got a little bit of life to live. I got to sow my wild oats. And now that I'm in my 30s, you know, I'm thinking about it. I'm getting a little closer, right? I mean, if, if I give my life to Jesus now, then I have to live my whole life for Jesus. And man, that sounds boring. It's the most fulfilling life you'll ever have, I promise. How many of you are putting off Jesus because you don't understand the urgency that today you could die, and if you die without Jesus, I'm sorry, I'm not sorry, I'm just telling you the truth. If you die without Jesus, your eternal destiny is hell. It's a real place, and it really, really sucks. There's a lot of other words I can use for that, That would be way more descriptive. But it's not a place you want to be. I don't want to scare the hell out of you today. What I want you to recognize is the urgency of how much Jesus loves you. The urgency of how Jesus is calling you and wooing you. The urgency of how Jesus needs you to be a witness in the world because the world is in utter chaos today and the only hope is Jesus himself. That's it. See, when we come under conviction by the Holy Spirit while hearing the truth, we must take immediate action or suffer spiritual loss. What did Felix say? He was convicted. I'm absolutely convinced of that because he was terrified. He knew what he heard was the truth. And the truth was, man, if I don't take Jesus today, I'm condemned. But his loss was, his heart was hardened when the conviction of the Spirit was there and he hardened it again and he hardened it again. Did you know Paul spent two years having conversation with these guys and they never came around to accepting Jesus? For those of you who are trying to convince somebody in your life to to just know Paul, he had all the right answers, I think, right? God changes the heart. But we must respond. How about those of us who are Christians? What if we don't respond to the word and the spirit immediately? Will our heart harden too? Yes, not to the point of condemnation, but to the point we won't be able to hear the voice of God in our life. You know, when God says, pick up the phone and call that person. When God says, you need to pray for that person. When God says, I want you to intervene in that conversation so that you can be an encourager. When God says you should lead a small group or you should be involved in a group, when God says you should do this or that, and you say, 
ah, it's just so inconvenient right now. When it works better, I will. When you say that, you harden your heart and you have spiritual loss in your life. And every time God prompts you, become hard to that. And pretty soon as a Christian, you realize, man, I'm just not hearing God anymore. And I wonder why. Because when he's asked you to go or do, you've refused. I want to end with a story from a commentary that I think is really fitting to help us understand the urgency of the day. There once lived a man who was transported into the black abyss inside the earth, surrounded by the evil spirits and their ruler, Satan himself. He watched as a discussion unfolded between Satan and his spirits. He saw that the ruler held a scepter of wickedness in his hand, and he heard him as he said with a loud voice, Will you go to earth for me and persuade people that I may accomplish the ruin of their souls? What message will you use? How will you say what you want to say so that men and women, boys and girls, will turn away from the things of God? A spirit responded, I will go for you and I will tell people that there is no heaven. The ruler frowned and replied, no, that will not do. For too many centuries, humanity has been told that there is a heaven. And our enemy, God, has given a Christ, the Christians a book to talk about heaven and promises that it is a place where they will no longer be, there, there will no longer be death and tears. There won't be sorrow or pain and affliction and tragedy. The second spirit glided forward and said, I will go and I will tell men and women that there is no hell. Again, the ruler responded negatively, that will not do either. The conscience, if nothing else, convinces people that someday there must be a day of reckoning and a place where men and women will come to terms with their lives. In fact, that book I mentioned, the Christian's handbook, has more to say about hell than about heaven. You could never convince them there's no hell. There was a pause. The ruler added, I need someone who will make an appeal to all classes, all ages, and all cultures in all the countries around the planet where men and women live. One dark spirit stepped up and said, I have the answer. I will go for you. I will not tell people there is no hell. I will not tell them there is no heaven. I will simply tell them there is no hurry. And that's who Satan said. Do you understand the urgency? Do you understand that today is the day of salvation? Where God is wooing you, He's calling you, He loves you to death. And he wants nothing more than for you to say yes to him. Saying yes to Jesus will be the hardest decision you've ever made and the best decision you've ever made all at the same time. It's death to self so you can live for God. 
It's moving all the knowledge that's in our head to our hearts so that it can come out through our hands and our feet. Do you understand the urgency? If you wait till tomorrow, it might be too late. Let today be the day of salvation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. For your clear call to us to respond to you, to recognize today that it truly is through faith by your grace that we can be saved. Jesus, thank you for all that you've accomplished for us on the cross through your death and by your resurrection. That though the message of the gospel is foolishness to the world and to those who are dying, it is the good news to those who are being saved. God, I pray for our church family. That God, we would see the urgency crying out to you for salvation, but also living our lives in such a way that, God, others would come to you through us. Forgive us, God. When we hit pause and we we put you off till tomorrow, may it not be so. May we say yes today. Amen.